coming up next on Two Cops, One Donut. Now that you guys are retired, you can you can say how you feel. Don, let me hear, man. Yeah, I mean, that the, the whole issue with the pistol brace, ATF foobarred that up big time. I mean, that that was something that, you know, they tried to get get ahead of it. They tried to really say, okay, this is, you know, when it first came out, the idea was this is for individuals who are disabled. They can't hold the gun, um, you know, in, with two hands. They're, you know, they don't have the strength to do it. So we're going to come up with this brace that you can put on it and it wraps around the, you know, your arm sits in it or wraps around it. So they're able to actually help support it and fire it. Then it turned into, you know, now we're going to make those illegal. Then we're not going to make them illegal. And then if you, the brace was not supposed to be shoulderable. And then there was a whole thing as well. If you shoulder it, now it's an illegal short barreled. But if you, if it's only for a short period of time, you fire it once or twice, then you take it back out. You're okay. It was, I mean, they were, it was so thin line, thin veil of what can make somebody illegal or not illegal with their gun. If they bring it up to their shoulder and they keep it there too too long, now it's considered, okay, now it's considered a short barrel. It's just, and with the new regulation, with this whole thing back and forth with the the other brace, I just think they were being led around politically. Um, and there's too much exterior Im- influence on this is what you need to do. But yet, you know, go back and do some research. How many of those were actually used in crimes? And, you know, somebody's going to take that and figure out how to, you know, it's not just swap it. I mean, you know, if you're going to have that and put a pistol brace on it, you got to know how to take it. Yeah. And you can watch YouTube, but, you know, you got to figure out how to take it apart, not lose the, the little springs, reattach everything to it. So, I mean, it's not like it's a major, major issue, but that's something that I think that they really messed up on, on the way that that whole thing went down. They could have saved themselves a lot of grief. All right, welcome back to Cops One Donut. I am your host, Eric Levine, and today I have two ATF special agents, retired, um, but uh, I got two guys with me, uh, Sean Hoban and Donald Serrano, and today this episode is going to be all about talking about ATF, what that involves, and what they did to get there, their family backgrounds and stuff like that that led them down this life of, life of service. Y'all know how my show format is. And then uh, we're going to get into what they're doing today outside of retirement and uh, talk about some cool new things that their experienced, uh, or their experience in law enforcement has actually um, developed some cutting-edge stuff for police to help catch bad guys. So um, I'm glad you guys are here. Don, thanks for being here, brother. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Love the show. Appreciate it, brother. Sean, appreciate you being here, brother. How are you doing? Doing great. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Not a problem. Okay. So, guys, um, ATF is it's not often talked about. Uh, when it is talked about, at least in the media, it's never good. <laughs> I never hear good things because... <laughs> Um, you know, it involves people's firearms and this is America and we like our firearms and some of the, the rules and laws and stuff that come out, you know, having, having a pistol grip and having whatever all the other stuff is. Um, 
you guys often get blamed for for the politics to get involved in that, which is not fair. But um, we like to talk about and humanize kind of the background of y'all. So, uh, Don, what got you going in the ATF? Like, what led you up to that? Where are you from? You had any family in in law enforcement, anything like that? Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. And um, I like to say my law enforcement career started at 16 because I had three uncles who were Detroit police officers. And at 16, I was able to sign the waiver and I could actually start doing ride-alongs with them. So I like to say that I have, uh, you know, law, law enforcement has been always in my blood. My uncle Sam, you know, I would ride with him and his partner, Carrie, probably once a month, once every other month. And that really you really see a different side of things. You know, at that age, 16, I was in the law enforcement explorers. So I knew what that aspect was, what it, you know, what law enforcement was, but you know, at 16 years old, they were in a uh, unmarked plainclothes detail. They self dispatched to armed robberies in progress, shots fired and burglaries in progress. So a 16 year old riding with them, I learned a lot relatively quickly. Um, Sean, what about you, brother? What led, what led you up to uh, becoming an ATF? Well, I was born and raised in a little city called North Lane, Colorado, just outside of Denver. Um, went to college, uh, playing baseball there. Uh, I wanted to be a professional pilot. Uh, and then I realized I didn't have any money. So it's very expensive to be a, be a pilot. So I took a criminal justice class. And I remember Professor Eisenhuth, who was a judge actually in Broomfield, took one of his classes and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. So I started taking more classes, switched my major over to criminal justice and I got a degree in criminal justice. So a little different than none, but I had no family is nobody in my family uh, before or since has been in law enforcement. I'm the only one. So that's how I kind of got started in, with, uh, with, uh, with ATF. I became a cop for three months um, mm -hmm. prior to ATF. Um, it's kind of a different time frame back then. They, Gave you a badge, it gave you a, gave you a uniform and an FTO, and said, "There's your squad car, go hit the streets." I hadn't even been to the academy yet. Um, it, it went out, started enforcing laws. You know, if you know, you know, I'm 23 years old. You know, no training in the in the academy. I was scheduled to go like January 17th, but this is August of the year. You know, four months earlier. So, long story short, is ATF called me and said, "Hey." You want a job? And I said, yeah, sure. I go, it's in San Francisco. I said, what time's my flight leave? And I go, well, be there in two weeks. So got to go in, talk to the chief and said, listen, you know, I'm single. don't have no kids, no wife, no nothing. I said, you know, I got an opportunity to go with ATF. And he goes, uh, I said, I'm going to take the opportunity. He goes, chief was great about it. He said, yeah, listen, if I was in your shoes, I'd do the same thing. So two weeks later, they swore me in. I started my career at ATF in 1988, January 3rd, 1988. Yeah, similar to like what Sean said. You know, I went to school, got my degree in at uh, Fair State in Michigan, uh, criminal justice law enforcement specialist. I was, you know, applying for jobs and, you know, I heard about this ATF and I'm like, what's that? And, you know, talk with some people about it, talk with my uncle who said he worked with them. And he's like, you know, they're the closest thing to a street level detective. Uh, so he really pushed me to apply, apply with them. Graduated school. There was the hiring freeze in early 1990 with the feds. Uh, worked at the Macomb County Sheriff for about that long. And then ATF called. Called me on a Saturday and said, do you still want the job with ATF? I said, yes, absolutely. They're like, 
okay, report Monday. I'm like, like in two weeks, they're like, no, like day after tomorrow, report to the Detroit office. So I went went to work with my chief. Uh, I said, hey, uh, ATF called and the position I was in was like a summer job. They hired 10 extra officers to cover the summer and we knew, you know, they'd keep two. Um, so I said, hey, I got called by ATF. I said, you know, I told him I needed two weeks. He's like, are you freaking crazy? Go. So I, I worked there Friday, worked there Saturday, worked there Sunday and started ATF on Monday. What training did they send you to, Don? Like, And we'll get to Sean right after that. Um, where did where did you go? How long was the training? Mine was a little unique. Are, are you talking about when I was at the at the agency or with ATF? With ATF. So with, with ATF, our training is at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center down in Glencoe, Georgia. Uh, great little lo lo location. It's in, in Br Brunswick, Georgia, about an hour or so north of Jacksonville, Florida. Um, back then, we would go to two schools. Any, any individual that was going to be a special agent in the, the Treasury Department that's what ATF was when, when we first came on. You had to go through their criminal investigator training program. So I had people from ATF, IRS, Secret Service, Railroad Retirement Board, uh, just a, a conglomerate of agencies. And, and that was 10 weeks. And it was just a basic, broad cr criminal investigator training. Uh, graduated from that, came back to Detroit. And I want to say it was probably two months later went back down to Georgia for another, it was either 10 or 12 weeks of ATF specifics. We learned our policies, our procedures, our use of force, our tactics it was all taught all by only ATF folks and it was only ATF folks in our class. So it was like a total of like, Sean was like 20 or 22 weeks that we went through. Mine was only 16. Okay. Yeah. I, I started in 88 and with eight weeks was the CIS school, which is criminal investigator school. And then they were called a new agent training. Uh, a little bit different because when I came on, there was a, I took four months to get me into CIS school. So I was working four months prior to going to, to uh, criminal investigator school. And then I didn't get in until the following year in the NAT. So the new agent training school, the, the advanced training. So, you know, it, it took a while but just because they were going through such a huge hiring time frame because at the time they hired a bunch of people back in the early 70s and now all those people are retiring and all of a sudden they realized oh crap we haven't hired anybody in 10 years and so they had to go through a big hiring big hiring so i you know timing's everything in this world and mm -hmm. timing for me was it was good to get on at the right time right place uh, but it took over a year for me to get all this all the schoolings done yeah the uh the thing i've noticed i've been an academy instructor before um and i've worked at two different agencies. Don, it's funny that you mentioned Detroit because I'm actually from Flint. Um, that's where I was born and raised. Uh, I was actually a cop up in Saginaw for a little bit um, okay. and then got down into uh, to Texas. But, um, you know, you, you talked about being a, a 22, 23-year-old, you know, ATF agent, uh, essentially. And um, we've had this discussion on here before, but I always find it humorous because I look back on my career and if you would have asked me, at 18, 19, 22, was I ready to be a cop? I would have told you, yes, I, w I was ready. And then I, now 40 year old me looks back <laughs> like you weren't ready <laughs> even at 25. Exactly. I mean, I, I, when I came on in Detroit, I was just over 21. I was the youngest agent there. And it was, you know, I'm like, okay, this is cool. I graduated. I was state cert certified. 
they give me a badge and a gun and, and like, okay, go like Sean, you said, it's like, Hey, here, go do it. I'm like, really? Okay. This is it. I mean, it was just like, and you're exactly right. Eric. You, you think back and you're like, wow, that was great. And like, really? They did that. <laughs> yeah. What were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, well the news, you're not thinking because you're, you're 23 years old. You got the tiger by the tail. You're, you now you're an ATF agent. Now you, you want to go out and you want to, you know, find bad guys, you want to arrest bad guys, you want to put bad guys in jail. Um, you know, I did 30 years with ATF. And I could quite, you know, we talked about, you know, you know, ATF gets blamed for a lot of things. But in 30 years, I never took a gun off an innocent person that didn't deserve to have their gun taken from them. These people are felons. These people are drug dealers. They're, they're, they're addicts. They're, they're child molesters. These are people that are, you know, they're bad people. And I, I don't have time to go talk, you know, go get somebody's gun that you know, never committed a crime. So I know about you, Dominic. In 30 years, I never took a gun off an innocent person. They were always, they always had some sort of violent felony in their background. Because a lot of times the U.S. attorney wouldn't even take them as cases. Right. Yeah, we had to fight a lot just to take, you know, somebody who's two-thirds or a three-time convicted felon and, you know, the PD, you know, like, hey, we, we know this guy's a shooter, you know, and we get him with, with the gun and, you know, it's, pushing the U.S. attorneys and it's like, yeah, he got popped with a couple, you know, twice for a couple rocks of crack cocaine and got, got a couple minor convictions. Like, guys, ah, is, is he really that bad? And like the PD is saying, yes, this is a shooter. We need him off the streets. So yeah, I agree with Sean, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, ATF is a redheaded stepchild. We like to get kicked and beat up and I'll be upfront. We had, we did a lot of stupid shit. There were some people in the administration that made some bad calls and it made us, we got lots of, you know, egg on our face and, you know, some of that stuff we, we deserve the blame for, but 95% of the stuff we're doing, it's going after the worst of the worst. Um, now yeah, it, you, you kind of struck a good question in my head. At least that's a good question to me. Um, how does ATF even start to get involved in a case? It's not like the PD. So this, I'm trying to think of it from a citizen's perspective. You know, I'm Joe Blow citizen. I'm out and about. Um, if the cops aren't investigating me on any anything, you know, the ATF isn't just out looking for me, are they? Like, how does ATF start getting involved in an investigation on anybody? Well, I'll tell you how it worked for me. I started in San Francisco, um, and I worked hand in hand with the state, the uh, San Francisco uh, narcotics unit. Um, I was out with them and forced, you know, doing cases with them. Uh, they did, you know, it got, it got to be a partnership. You know, it's like, you know, I'd help them out with the, any, any of these really nasty knuckleheads that are committing a lot of crimes that have guns and able to get them in the federal system and put them in jail. Uh, and they get another body because I'm working them with them. So, you know, ATS always been known as kind of like, you know, kind of like the street cops of the federal government because we work with the state and local so well. Um, we don't come in there trying to, you know, throw our, throw our badge around saying we're, we're somebody special. Um, but a lot of our cases usually end up by working with the state and locals. And we get, you know, we work informants just like, you know, the state and locals do. We get informants. We bring them in in our cases. Um, we get people calling in. I mean, these are just a few of the, you know, you know basically it's just the kind of way it works is, you know, we're not, you know, thinking one day I'm going to go get, you know, you know, Joe Smith over there. I'm going to, I'm going to target him. It's like, there's a reason we're going after somebody. Um, we have the luxury of identifying who we're going after, finding about their criminal record beforehand, before we even decide to open a case on them. 
So if they're not, you know, don't have a violent history, basically, um, you know, quite frankly, we don't have time. We're not that big of an agency. We got like 2,500 agents uh, in the entire United States, you know, and that's total. Uh, so you're not talking a lot of agents to cover, you know, 50 states and a couple of territories. So we're not very big. Um, and so we don't, you know, we, we usually force multiple, multiply by working with the state. Involved. Yeah, to piggyback on what Sean, Sean was saying. Yeah, we, you know, started off in, in, in Detroit. A vast majority of our work was working with, you know, the agencies there. And be it Detroit, Dearborn, you know, Flint, Saginaw, you know, agencies that were experiencing gun violence or drugs and, and gun issues, working with them side by side. Um, and yeah, we would develop our own informants and, you know, Sean said, opening up cases, Sean was a supervisor. I was a supervisor. You know, it's not just like an agent on the streets going to say, okay, I'm now going to go, you know, in, in investigate Eric. You know, he's got to work with packet, take it to his supervisor and say, hey, I've got this information either from the PD or I've got an informant that says Eric is doing X, Y, and Z. I'd like to go ahead and open an investigation because this is what I would like to do. This, this is what I think he's doing ask for electronic surveillance, you know, whatever you want to do, you know, there's steps that you had to go through to actually open up a, a case on somebody. It's not just, you decide, oh, hey, let me just go ride around and start following pe pe people around. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Um, it, you know, it's, like I said, I like doing the education part of this and, you know, helping people understand like that it's, people think the, the the man is around enough and then now you got all these multiple agencies you got the federal versus the local and you know it oftentimes it really usually just stems from guys like me local guys like hey man this guy's up to some weird shit and it's one it's beyond my capabilities to keep digging into it two i'm not a specialist in it um you know police works a lot like being a doctor and i like to make this comparison is that like you're you're a general physician you're a, a pediatrician you're a foot doctor you're you got all these different specialists so your general doctor is going to look you over and he's gonna be like you know what okay you got the flu we're gonna give you this okay and it it's not working well it's the same in police work hey we got this shithead over here and he's doing this and but he's got these um automatic glocks and i'm not really sure what the law is on these okay well i'm gonna see a specialist on this let me call uh who specializes in firearms oh atf uh let me reach out to one of those guys see if this guy is on their radar what they want us to do and typically that's how it will kick off for me now i've i've got my introduction to my atf guy hey this is what i got and they'll say hey we'll start digging into it and we'll let you know and then that's where it goes from there sean what do you got buddy you know yeah i was gonna just bring it up is you know the uh the local cops are your best source of information uh, they got their they got their finger on the pulse of what's going on in the neighborhood and what, who are the bad guys because you go to a neighborhood and it's like you know you know you talk to the, you you talk to that beat cop that's working that that particular beat and say who are your knucklehead they know you know who the knuckleheads are so you guys are the best information kind of in given the information that what really makes it, I think stands out ATF from a lot of different agencies is that we don't sit there and just take the case and say hey thanks a lot Eric see you later bye. Like, okay, Eric, we're going to work this together, you know, you know, it, we'll work it, you know, work the investigation together as opposed to just taking the case and running off with it. Um, that's not the way, it, you know, ATF, you know, it made its bones over the years. That's not how I was taught by the senior agents that I worked with. They taught, you know what, they're your source of information. And one thing you never do is you never step on them, you know, and that's how I kind of 
ran my entire career. It's like, you know, you work with the state and local. You don't, they don't work for you. You work with them. Yeah. The FBI is probably the only one that really steps on our toes. It's <laughs> they're the ones that uh, they, they want to, they want to take credit for everything that we've done. And, 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 you know, basically crap on you after the fact. But the thing is, is they get, you know, they're, they're the abusive husband. They, they give you all the money. They give you all this stuff, these cool toys. But at the end of it, they, they slap you again. Yeah. It's all right. I'm still yeah. taking credit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. Uh, don't get me started on the uh, working with, I've worked with the FBI too. And it's hard to work with them because all the time it's like, no, you're working for them. So it's like, yeah, uh, a lot of stories, but uh, we'll save that for a different day. All right. Okay. So Don, um, you're, you're ATF, you're up in Michigan, uh, you've gone through your training and now there's a, there's a, a whole realm of things that the ATF does, uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. And you get to, I don't, I don't know how it works. Do you get to specialize in one? Are you a jack of all trades? Um, but as you get going, what was appealing to you within the agency? I'm sure there's all these different jobs, just like in police. So for people wondering, like, Levine, what are you talking about? Like, you could be a canine officer in police. You can go be a SWAT guy. You can go be a narc. You can be a vice. Any of these things. How did that work for you, Don, in ATF? Well, for me in Detroit, I uh, focused most of my time on guns and drugs and going after following the gun because we were able to show wherever we had gun violence, there was narcotics involved. And wherever we you know, DEA or the local narcs got dope. Guess what was there? Guns. So I really focused in on that and then working with the gangs. Uh, I actually did a little bit of tobacco work, uh, tobacco smuggling cases from Kentucky to Detroit. But I really honed in on our bread and butter, uh, the fire, firearms, because that's what's causing most of the issues in the cities. Drugs, yes, big issue. Uh, but the violence, you know, trying to stem that flow of the illegal firearms coming in or the guys that are selling them on the black, black markets, right? That's what, you know, what I really focused my time on. And that's the path that I wanted to take. Um, you know, when I w was in Detroit and ended up going to Washington DC through our headquarters, uh, do some program managers, then came out to Chicago um, as a group supervisor. And I was actually overseeing our firearms trafficking group. And, you know, one of the things they did working with, I had Chicago police assigned to me, we had Illinois State Police, uh, Cook, Cook County depths, and we were just all doing investigations. But it was all, when, when I got there, it was one man, one gun cases. The PD would arrest somebody, felon, felon him in possession, they'd give it to us, and we'd, you know, we'd write that case up to the, the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I'm like, that's like digging a hole in wet sand. As soon as you scoop it out, it just back fills, fills in. It really doesn't, you're, you're not making a dent on a guy who's got a 10 year old, you know, a narcotics conviction and he's caught with, with a gun, unless he's a real shit bird, but you need to go after who's bringing the guns in. So basically, you know, we were doing about a hundred defendants a year uh, before I got there in my first year. So we're, we're meeting with the supervisors and we're basically talking, talking about, you know, what we're going to do for the following year. I said, yeah, I'm going to, you know, we're going to look to do like 10 or 15 defendants. And they're like, wait, what? Yeah, like, yeah, I want to do like 10 or 15 cases, but it's basically going to be who are those individuals that are bringing the guns in? You know, that's what I want to focus in on, not the one man, one gun thing. 
who are the individuals that are going down to the pawn shops in Kentucky or who have cousins in Alabama that would drive down on the weekends, have them buy four guns for them. They turn around and bring them up to the streets of, of Chicago and they're being used in crimes, you know, two days later. That's the important stuff. And that's what I really, you know, honed in on. Okay. So while you're, while you're chasing after these guns and the guys that are doing the dealing and, and, you know, the bigger buyers and stuff like that, um, what exactly are you, what exactly are you focusing on? Are you looking at the, um, the, just taking guns across state lines? Are you looking at people that are like smuggling because when people think of smuggling, we always think of outside the country, into our country, or vice mm-hmm. versa. We don't really consider smuggling state to state or anything like that. Um, right. So when you're doing this and you start digging into them, are you? How are you? How are you evaluating this? Is I guess what I'm getting at. Yeah, we would look at you know where the guns were coming from, and in Illinois, we were our our own worst en- en- enemy vast majority of the guns that were recovered in Chicago were coming from the suburbs of, of Chicago. There were no gun stores in Cook County. They had out, outlawed those. But second and third were Indiana, Ohio, and then Alabama. Like, okay, if those are, you know, second, third, and fourth, how are they getting up there? There has to be a way that, you know, every day we're recovering guns from Alabama or Indiana how are they getting up there? It's an easy drive, but who's actually bringing them up? So working with, you know, once those guns are recovered, ATF does the tracing on them. So if an agency recovers a gun, you know, they can submit the serial, make model and serial number and it would trace it to the first purchaser. You know, that, that gun may have been stolen or, you know, changed hands two or three times, but just trying to figure out who are the individuals that are bringing it in, but then also, getting informants and working with the PD and, Hey, they know this guy that's got 10, 10 Glocks. He's trying, trying to sell. That's where we would, you know, try to work with that to bring an undercover in and actually try to buy those guns from him or, or, or her before it actually got on, got on the street. Okay. Sean, what about you, buddy? You, you get in and you see all these options in the ATF and you're like, you know what? This one seems to be the most appealing to me. How did that work for you? Well, I came into a big city like San Francisco. And when you go to a big city, um, they have groups and they have they had an arson explosive group. which All they did were arson explosive cases. Uh, so that's one one avenue you can go. The other was pretty much the firearms group. So uh, they had an Achilles group and they had, you know, they had an OSIF group. So they had different groups. But you basically initially you just put into a group. Uh, and then you kind of filter, figure out where you're going to go from there. I was put into a firearms group, uh, like the firearms aspect to it. Uh, you were kicking doors in, you were arresting people, uh, you're writing search warrants and doing all that stuff. That stuff was all um, a, lot of fun, a lot of fun when you're 23 years old, uh, feeling invincible at the time. Uh, so you want to go out there and chase bad guys, chasing through, the, chasing through the streets, tackling them, you're doing all that stuff. So uh, I focused on that, and I was lucky to do a couple of details uh, one was in D.C., which was a six-month detail in uh, Washington, D.C., work on our uh, nation's capital, which, by the way, is a, is a shithole. Excuse my language, but uh, it is, uh, it's, not, it's not a very friendly place. Uh, we worked at uh, areas in 5D, 60, and 70 uh, of, of D.C., and all we did was we, we had an informant. We'd go in, buy crack cocaine. Uh, if, they, if they saw a gun in there, we'd write a search warrant, and we'd go back and kick, 
kicked the door in. And in six months, our group, which consisted of about nine people, did 76 search warrants, um, just kicking the door in over and over, over, taking guns off the street, doing stuff. So that stuff always really appealed to me. I actually, I kind of, in 1989, ETF developed our, what they called the Times ECT, which is Entry Control Team, and then turned into the SRT, which was Special Response Team, which is like a SWAT team. Um, I, I was one of the original members of the, uh, the San Francisco team in 1989. And I find that that was where I, I was like, okay, I want to do this. So I did that for 17 years, you know, and I did it full time and, and as a supervisor, a tactical commander for a while too. But that's how you start off. I mean, I did one, you know, Don did a, Tobacco case. I did. I worked on worked on because it was another agent's case. But I worked on a on an alcohol case, and it was not not what you're thinking. You're not thinking. You're thinking moonshine. Now this was actually a huge fraud case where this this winery was. They picked the grapes. They picked two type of grapes: Grenache grapes and Zinfandel grapes. Well, Grenache grapes are cheap. Zinfandel uh, Zinfandel uh, grapes are expensive. So they fill up the, the gondola three quarters of the way full with Grenache grapes and top it off with Zinfandel and pass the whole thing off as Zinfandel. It turned into like a multi, multi-million dollar fraud scheme. Uh, so I worked on that kind of a case, but that's the only <laughs> alcohol case we did. Our, my bread and butter, my whole career was 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 firearms. Did a couple of explosive cases. Uh, when I, I worked in Reno as well and is also in Denver for a couple of years in each place. And those are, you know, like Reno was... What, it's basically one one uh, group. So you did everything. So if an arson case came up, you worked it. If an explosive case came up, you worked it. You know, so it's whatever. You know, you don't have the luxury of being in one group or another. Whatever came across the table, that's what you end up working. So I focused my my entire career was on guns, basically. Most of them are, you know, crooks. You know, if convicted felons in possession of firearms, drug dealers in possession of firearms, machine gun cases. Uh, these are all cases that, that, you know, quite frankly, you know, they're the violent people that are out there who do all these heinous crimes. And so those are the people that we want to target. And those are the people who are trying to get out the street. And, you know, like Don talked about, you know, firearms tracing, you know, that's kind of the first, first step in crime gun intelligence, you know, crime gun intelligence, helping find that in information. We're off the bat knowing that, hey, that gun, that crook, that felon who cannot purchase a firearm legally, he got that gun from somebody. They use a lot of straw purchasers. Uh, girlfriends or friends, and they buy guns for them. Uh, but where did that gun come from? And when you find it that's out of state, then somebody had to transport that into the state, which is also felony as well. So, you know, those kind of cases, you know, that's the cases we focused on. Uh, like I said, I worked a lot with the narcotic unit in San Francisco, um, worked with them a lot. So uh, they're, 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 they're called inspectors. They, you know, they, now detectives are inspectors. It's like, you know, Inspector Callahan, you know, they're inspectors. Uh, I worked with those guys. Those guys are great. You know, love working with them. No, it's just like you, you have one mission. It's like find the knucklehead, get them arrested, and get them off the street. Okay. All right, Don. I'm going to hit you with the uh, the fun questions, okay? Or the okay. fun question, and I'll get Sean. Um, favorite best case you've ever worked? I would say the, the best case that we ever worked was when I was in Chicago, and we were part of the firearms trafficking group there. And guns were coming in and we had, you know, the U.S. attorney was all about pro- prosecuting individuals there. But we had several individuals that were, that were down in Alabama and, you know, never stepped foot into Illinois. Their boy, boyfriends or cousins would go down, buy, 
they'd buy the guns for them. We, we actually had them where they FedExed four handguns up to these guys in, in Chicago. Uh, but what, what was what really resonates with me about that is that we had such a very powerful U.S. attorney that was willing to go after these. It was the first time ever in the district that we prosecuted people in that district that never stepped foot in the district. But we were able to show that they knew that they were buying these guns to go up to, to Chicago. And, and I think it was like 28 people that we ended up getting cases with. And of those, I think three, three or four were in the Chicago area and the rest were out of the state. And a lot of them never even stepped foot in the state. But we were able to show, you know, venue and how a lot of these guns, we had one case, she bought an AK-47. And two days later, the gang used it on a drive-by shooting in Chicago. And as you know, it happens all the time. You know, 12-year-old girl sitting on the porch of her grandma's house gets shot three times by the AK because it was the, they got the wrong house. The bad guys drove up on it, let it up, and killed her. It was just horrendous. And being able to work with the PD to get the shooter, but then also you know, a lot of times the case ends there. No, we got the shooter. Okay. You know, here, you know, they're, they're going on to trial. Okay. Who gave them that, that gun? If they didn't get that gun, that person is culpable in that murder. And we were able to work with them and identify the lady that bought that gun for him and get her, get her prosecuted as well. So that really resonates to me because that gave justice for that little girl. Amazing dude. That's badass. Yeah, that's the, yeah. that's the type of stuff that, you know, it keeps you going as a as a cop. I don't care how burned out you you get, you get that one case and you you feel like you started your career over again. You feel like a fresh face. So I I I totally totally respect that, and uh, that's a that's a good one. Okay, Sean, now you got a one up on man. Well, this is probably my best case and my worst case all wrapped into one. Um, okay. Basically, it was a undercover deal. Uh, I got an informant. A uh, guy wanted to buy a bunch of Glock pistols. Uh, he wanted to buy 14 Glock pistols. Uh, so I made the arrangement, got the arrangement, had it set up. I had a car. It turned out to be a Buick Grand National. Um, it was parked in the parking lot. It was one way in, one way out. Uh, so we, you know, tactically, it was a good, good way to set it up. We had two blocking units. We're going to block them in. Once the deal went down. Um, Long story short is um, the guy said he'd be back at nine o'clock. So we're waiting there. We see a guy hop the wall, slide down. He goes over, breaks into, into the UC car. And within about 15, 20 seconds, got the car started. And they go, did you leave the cars, the keys in the car? And I went, no, they're in my pocket. I pulled them out. I said, I've got the keys. So the guy was stealing the car. What the bad guy did is he went and got a car thief to come over and steal this car. Well, now he's in a Buick Grand National, one of the fastest street cars out there. Um, should have disconnected the battery. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of money morning quarterback afterwards, but you know, should have disconnected the battery. Would have been, you know, one thing. Um, I had two blocking units come in. Well, there was a civilian leaving at the time. You know, typical Murphy's Law, leaving. Another car. My first blocking unit delayed a little bit, so he took a little time getting in front of it. He hits the, the first blocking unit, bounces off it, and starts heading up the street. Uh, we had a guy named Ross Aarons driving a 5.0 Mustang. They hit head on. And then the Buick National proceeds just to push it out of the way. Well, that, that 
Mustang was probably about the fastest car that probably could have kept up with it, but now it's just totally disabled. Now I'm on, I'm on foot at this time, running next to the car, thinking about shooting, you know, dumping the driver because he just hit one of our agents. Too many people in the background. It's like, can't do it. Uh, long story short, he takes off down the street. The other unit that was supposed to be blocking that got hit first was in pursuit right out of the movies. I mean, they're ramming him in the side, knock him into oncoming traffic. They spin out. I lose the car. We lose the car. We find it seven minutes later and the guns are gone. So now I'm thinking this is now the worst case of my life. Uh, I'm thinking I'm going to be, you know, transferred to Detroit is what I actually thought. You know, no offense, Don. <laughs> but uh, I thought I was going to be transferred to Detroit. So, um, well, you know, I end up, you know, getting back to the informant. Uh, we found out, you know, the main suspect got him arrested. Uh, we ended up finding the guy that ended up getting the uh, seal in the car. We got the, we, we got the guns back. We did, we wrote like five search warrants in like three days to get these guns back because we got found out where they were going. Uh, the good thing is, is that I took all the firing pins out of the firearms. So, you know, that they couldn't be used. But the one way we found out about it is they called the gun dealer and said, hey, Getting firing pins for a clock 17. <laughs> so it's like, okay, there's a clue. They don't break, they don't really break that often. So uh, in the getting that search warrant, got everybody arrested, took a week to get everybody in custody, get the guns back. Uh, but is, you know, one of my best cases, because you know, I got a cut bunch of knuckleheads off the street, but it's also one of my worst cases because everything went to hell in a handbasket quick. So and then <laughs> had a lot of people. And a lot of people talking about, well, you should have put a big, you know, you know, RV or a big you know, rail truck in front of it. But yeah, well, where were you three days ago? You know, it's kind of like, thanks a lot. Uh, but you learn, you learn your lessons and you learn how mm-hmm. to find better. But at the end of the day, it was, it turned out to be a great case, but it's also it was a bad case because three, t- three G-Rags got totaled, um, lost 14 Glocks, got them back. Um, but bad guys did go to jail at the end of the day, so... I don't know if that talks you down, but that's, you know, that's kind of how, you know, that's how cases work sometimes. Right. Yeah. I mean, I like sometimes like they're something small can turn into something you think this is going to go super easy. And then Murphy kicks in a lot. And then other time it's, you've got this, you know, case you think it's going to be the case, case of the century. And then like that, it's gone. It just, nothing happens. It's never, never pans out. It's just the way it, way it is. But you well, got to keep just going out there. Yeah, the guy who stole the car, he had five felony convictions for car theft. He would steal anywhere from three to five vehicles a night. He'd just steal them, then run until they ran out of gas. When it just left it where he ran out of gas and walked toward another one and stole it. Uh, and I found out a lot about how to steal cars, which I, I don't really want to share with everybody. But um, it actually was pretty easy on the GM product back in the day. So. It's more difficult today, yeah. but back then it was not hard at all. Yeah, the Kias super are the easy, are the the easy Kias ones now. Yep, yeah. that's right. Yeah, the yeah. Kias are super easy. They're putting out tutorials on TikTok on how to take those things. Well, it's funny. I just rented. I was in in um, a Detroit for a meeting last week, and I rented a Kia. And I'm going to some some unique areas. I'm like, is my car going to be out there when I get back? So I made sure I didn't leave anything in it. Smart. With the insurance done. Yeah. It's funny how it works. You know, you, you prep for a case, you prep for an investigation and you will do, you'll, you'll, you'll hit every check mark and you'll be like, all right, we're good. 
because you you anticipate something shitty happening on that that call or whatever it is you know even if it's just a knock and talk on a house or whatever it is you're like all right where's the escape routes okay they can go out this way cool um you know all right if somebody goes down this is the rescue vehicle that's the car that's going to come in you know you're in charge of leading the way get on the radio you, you know you're telling your guys everything that they're supposed to do and you're like all right we got this and then nothing happens and you do it again you're like and then nothing happens and you do it again and nothing happens. And finally, you know, you go to do a knock and talk. I'll just go up there real quick and you know, I'll just go see how they're doing. And you knock on the door and there's fucking gun rounds coming out of the door. And you're like, oh, shit, we got caught with our pants down because you prepped well, every time and nothing ever happens. Well, my supervisor at the time, a guy named Lou Bristol, great guy. Um, he doesn't like, you know, doing reverse stings. He said, I don't like him. He said, but you checked all the boxes. You did. You planned out everything perfectly. Everything was, well, obviously not perfectly because it didn't go perfectly. But you planned it properly. Um, I got a call. He got a call from after he, after I called him. <laughs> kind of a quick funny story. I called him up and he answers the phone. The guns got stolen. I go, yeah, Lou, they did. They got stolen. And he goes, okay. He goes, what happened? So I told him. He goes, okay. This is your last chance to tell me you're fucking with me because I'm gonna start making phone calls. And I said, no, no, Lou, it did happen. So he he goes the the ASAC at the time. Said, I want to see Sean open my office first thing in the morning. And Lou goes, No, I approved it. I approved the mission. I'll be over in the morning in the morning to answer answer questions. And we just got a new sack at the time. And I know Don knows him. His name's Paul Snavel. He's a great guy. He came from Miami. Um, and called up the sack and the sack, you know, his only response, this tells you the kind of guy he is, is, he said, Well, when you're out there, you know, doing shit, shit can happen. You know, you know, you're out there doing the job, shit can happen. And it and it does. You know, it's just, you can't predict, well, it's hard to predict bad guys. Uh, they'll do whatever they got to do to escape. You've seen that, I'm sure, Eric, in your job. And you, you, they, they jump out of st second story windows, third story windows, just, just to get away. So yep. you got to plan for that, but sometimes you can't plan for everything. Yep. Bridges, then, they jump off bridges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've seen that. You're like going, yeah, I'm not following that guy. Yeah. <laughs> You win this round. <laughs> I'm going back. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and then you the, throw, seen, ahead, then you throw in the uh, uh, the other caveat of now you're dealing with informants, which oh. the only reason you have that informant is nine times out of ten is because they're just as dirty as your bad guy. Maybe they're a little lower, lower less that they're trying to work off a of beef or they're trying to do, you know, do some good, good service because, hey, you're. I want to, you know, I'm just going to be here to turn in my competition to you guys so I can go out and do, do my own thing. So you're dealing with informants and that's just another, I don't know how many times that you deal with an informant, you give him money to do, do a buy and you're like, okay, he went in the house a half hour ago, you have people on the front and back and he's not there. And all of a sudden it's like, he's gone. And just like, you know, it, it happens, you know, but it's, you know, the element you're working with, but you know, informants can, can be a roll of the dice. If you're a business owner or an HOA, please stop and listen to me right now. If you're just listening to the audio, do yourself a favor and watch the YouTube version of this episode to get a visual of what I'm about to tell you. I want to tell you guys about Insight LPR. It's a license plate reader. If your agency, community, or business is looking to invest in LPR to help solve and deter crime or to make your community safer, Insight LPR has my vote of confidence. I've met with their team. They know their LPRs, guys. Uh, they're the real deal. They bring over 75 years of collective experience 
improvements to building LPR cameras and the software that supports communities across the country. The other thing I really like about this team is how much they listen to law enforcement. They understand the importance of working together with law enforcement and getting their input as they build and innovate products and their service to match the needs of law enforcement. In other words, when I complain or have suggestions to make their damn camera better, they actually do it. The Insight LPR team is extremely passionate and takes pride in their product development, which makes their cameras some of the most durable cameras in the market. For the gear nerds out there, what that means is this stuff's made of military-grade aluminum and is nitrogen-purged, whatever that means. This design makes the cameras rugged and able to withstand harsh weather elements. Here's the big selling point for me. Their nighttime scan accuracy is higher than most of the leading competitors. In my opinion, this is what sets them apart. As we know, the majority of crimes occur at night, so it's critical to have high scan accuracy at night. Insights cameras check the box with the nighttime plate read accuracy greater than 96%. 96% guys, that's pretty freaking high. If your community is looking to invest in LPR technology, reach out to one of their experts today or reach out to me. Tell them two cops, one donut sent you. They're a necessary yep. evil. They're a necessary evil is what they are. It's even harder these days to be on surveillance because of cell phones. <laughs> because oh. Not because the bad guys have them. It's because other officers have them. And you sitting there set up on a house for an hour, two hours. Um, and if you're the eye, you got to stay the eye. And these guys can get out. And I've been guilty. And I know some of my... <laughs> Hey, partners have been guilty where we're watching the house and somebody else is like, hey, I just seen him go by in a car. Did he get by you? And I'm like, uh, yeah, my bad. I was, uh, I must have missed him. I was peeing in a bottle. <laughs> yeah, cell phones are bad. Yeah, cell phones are bad. Very, yeah, distracting. So Very distracting. Lesson for our officers out there. If you go to do surveillance, one, Gatorade bottles are the best peeing. And two, um, wide mouth. the eye. Yep. Keep your, keep your, keep your cell phone down. I promise you the moment you look at it is the moment they're going to leave. Murphy's law happens all the time. Yep. Yep. I, we, we've found the best thing to do if, if you're, you're striking out and you know, the end of the day is coming you're like, you know, well, at least for us as officers, um, end of the day is coming. You just get on the radio and be like, all right guys, five more minutes. And then you, you wait 10 minutes because they'll inevitably come out because somebody on the radio says, as soon as you're, yep. that's, that's yeah, the trick. That <laughs> so, um, yeah, you just, you shortcut it. As soon as you set up surveillance, you just get on the radio and say, all right, five more minutes. And then you hope your day goes by really quick. Um, okay guys. So I, I think we got a good feel for what y'all specialized in. I want to ask some of the, um, we hear about the good you, do, you guys are doing helping get guns off the streets, especially, um, I wouldn't really consider alcohol or tobacco, um, since they're both illegal, as being the mm -hmm. uh, the 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 naughty boys of the street. The guns are they're they're right. the ones that are out hurting people for the most part. Um, alcohol can hurt people, but um, it's a little different. Uh, but the guns are the big thing. So um, I kind of want to hit on some of the <clears throat> bad, some of the stuff that you know that that's going around. You know, g ghost guns and. Uh, um, the the switches and, and stuff like that and and what the what how how do they update you guys with this stuff how are you guys finding out about uh, out about it um like the rule changes with the pistol grips and the or, or whatever the hell the, the stock and the the no stock or the, and brace. the short barrel versus yeah. the, the oh, arm oh, braces oh. and the bump stocks and all of that stuff so i kind of want to hit that because that's that's probably the freshest thing that's on people's minds so um 
Don, I'll let you go first, man. You tell 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 us a little bit about the the crappy stuff going on right now. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's so much stuff that's going on right now. It's like, okay, which one do you go on first? I mean, the ghost guns, the ghost guns, and I mean, biggest issue is actually the Glock switches, because you know those things can be put on a Glock, you know, in such a short period of time, and then you know people are 3D printing these things, and you know they're sending out. I, I was actually at a conference. And they actually had a, a small 3D printer. It was like your cheapo one, you know, cheapo, you know, three, four, five, five hundred dollar one. The guy's doing a you know 45 minute presentation. During the presentation, he's printing up, he's having the machine print up two Glock switches. I mean, it's just, you know, he gets them done that quick. They're being mass produced overseas and down, down south. I mean, it's those are the things that every department, a lot of them are saying we're we're coming across across these because one you you take a gun you put it in the hand of somebody that one that shouldn't have have that gun then they're using it for something nefarious they're either you know they're slinging dope they're selling guns they're involved in something and then now you 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 take a glock and you make that thing automatic and one of these guys are never good shots anyways if they were good shots we'd have less more criminals out there because they'd be shooting each other not everybody else but you add on top of that, you know, 30 round magazine and a Glock 17 and or or that drum magazine that fits in it. And they're dumping 100 rounds in, you know, 10 seconds on a drive by. You know what's going to happen. Innocent people are going to be hit. And then now it's just one one thing we always say with our job when Sean and I are out, and we're talking to agencies is, you know, Today's shooter is going to be tomorrow's victim. And today's victim is going to be tomorrow's shooter because they're just all that retaliatoriness. Gotcha. All right. Um, Sean, can you kind of elaborate? Well, the, the the Glock switches, yes, we have been running across those like crazy. Um, and for those that are kind of confused what exactly a, a Glock switch is, it looks like a little block. And it, and it goes right on the back of a of a Glock handgun. And it, mm-hmm. it just kind of protrudes a little bit. If you weren't looking for it, you may not really notice it. But um, it does. It turns a Glock into a fully automatic gun. You just hold the trigger down and it just lets go of all the bullets. Um, whether they've got a 30-round mag in there that's extended way out like a goofball or they've got just the standard mag, but it'll it'll go through all those rounds in just a couple seconds, um, uh, if not faster than that. So um, they're, they're, they're bad news and they're very hard to control if, you, if you're not an experienced shooter. So they're, they're bad news right now and they're... And these kids, they don't realize how, you know, they don't realize the extent of the illegalness of them because they're so easy to get a hold of, like you were talking about, the 3D printing. Um, Now, Sean, have you guys run across any 3D printed guns, like fully printed guns? Is that a thing yet? Yeah, it is. Uh, They're all printed, but what happens is they don't last very long because the material they're using and stuff, they they come across, but you can usually get a couple of shots out of them. what we're seeing a lot of is just, you know, 90 percenters, you know, the, the AR 15s that are, you know, 90% done. You just got to put all the pieces on and drill a couple holes. And now you got an A, now you have an AR 15. Uh, same thing with you know, a lot of the pistols, the ghost guns. Uh, you, you basically, they're selling all the pieces to it and you have to do a little bit of milling work and you have to drill out a couple of holes. Uh, once you drill out those holes, now that lower receiver is now a handgun. Now it's supposed to be registered. Now every lower receiver has to be registered from from law, but they got away from that by selling that piece because it's just a piece of metal. 
until you drill the holes out, then it becomes a firearm. So the, we're running across a lot of Glocks, uh, no, not a Glock, but a lot of ghost guns that are out there. Um, some are made very well, some are made very poorly. Sometimes they malfunction and blow up, but there's one thing they all do make, and this goes to the crime and intelligence side of it, is it, it does make a distinguished mark on the breech face of every uh, cartridge case that is fired. So it, it makes it unique to that gun. So that's what helps get it into the Niven system and what our system we'll talk about later about, but it's, it makes a very distinct mark. It's like a fingerprint. So these guns, even though they, we can't trace them because there is no serial number on them, we can connect them together by the cartridge case. But we've seen a lot of ghost guns being out there because people are realizing that, hey, listen, if I get somebody to buy it for me, that's a straw purchase, that's a felony, I can go to jail, uh, but I can get this gun, make it myself, and there's no way to trace it. You know, they can just throw it away. I mean, you find a gun, you know, you, you can <coughs> throw it away, and guess what? You can't trace it. You won't know who ever got it. So uh, that's the that's the that's the scary part right now is because that you know they're doing that with the AR-15s, they're doing with handguns. Those ghost guns is something that they're going to have to figure out. Uh, just point out, you know, ATF does not uh, does not uh, develop laws. We don't we don't write laws. Um, Congress does. Congress writes the laws. ATF enforces the laws. And I think that's where people get confused a lot that we're out there making up our own laws. We don't. You know, we don't make up the laws. The Congress makes sets the laws uh, from the, uh, the, National Gun, the uh, Gun Act of 1968. Um, that's where it all stemmed from. So uh, as an ATF agent, we just enforce, we enforce the laws that are put on the books by Congress. So and, okay. and they're going to have to figure something out to do with the ghost guns is what, you know, my point. Yep. Um, I was going to ask you specifically, why do they call it a ghost gun? But you, <laughs> you cleared that up right towards the end there. Um it's, they're just untraceable guns. So if, if you're wondering the shortcut for people listening, but um, okay. So since you guys are both ATF and you're retired, so now you can, you can be fully honest with me. The, the pistol brace versus the, the regular stock versus, uh, you know, the, the pistol grip, the pi all of these, what I like to call subjective bullshit things as the person that has to enforce some of this stuff, like what is your guys' opinion? Um, one of these new laws that they're trying to get by on, on this. And then two, can you, as a, what I would consider a firearm expert on, on this stuff, uh, explain like how the, the AR 15 and then your, you know, your regular hunting rifle. Those are basically the two of the same exact things, except one has a wooden handle on it and the other one looks it's all black and tactical air quotes. So uh, I want to go down that, <laughs> that rabbit hole. Now that you guys are retired, you can, you can say how you feel, Don, let me hear, man. Yeah. I mean that the, the whole issue with the pistol brace, ATF foobarred that up big time. I mean, that, that was something that, you know, they tried to get, get ahead of it. They tried to really say, okay, this is, you know, when it first came out, the idea was this is for, individuals who are disabled they can't hold the gun um you know in with two hands they're you know they don't have the strength to do it so we're going to come up with this brace that you can put on it and it wraps around the you know your arm sits in it or wraps around it so they're able to actually help support it and fire it then it turned into you know now we're going to make those illegal then we're not going to make them illegal and then if you the brace was not supposed to be shoulderable 
And then there was a whole thing as well. If you shoulder it, now it's an illegal short barreled. But if you if it's only for a short period of time, you fire it once or twice, then you take it back out. You're okay. It was I mean, they were it was so thin line, thin veil of what could make somebody illegal or not illegal with their gun. If they bring it up to their shoulder and they keep it there too, too long. Now it's considered okay. Now it's considered a short barrel. It's just. And with the new regulation, with this whole thing back and forth with the the other uh, brace, I just think they were being led around politically, um, and there's too much exterior Im- influence on this is what you need to do. But yet, you know, go back and do some research. How many of those were actually used in crimes? And you know, somebody's going to take that and figure out how to. You know, it's not just swap it. I mean, you know, if you're going to have that and put a pistol brace on it, you got to know how to take it. Yeah. And you can watch YouTube, but, you know, you got to figure out how to take it apart, not lose the, the little springs, reattach everything to it. So, I mean, it's not like it's a major, major issue, but that's something that I think that they really messed up on, on the way that that whole thing went down. They could have saved themselves a lot of grief. Yeah. Sean, now you said, I think it was you, Sean, that said there's 2,500 of y'all for the nation, like ish. That's not very many. And you know how many short barrel rifles and whatnot are out there with, you know, your, your citizens that are following the laws. Like they're not out there doing anything bad nefarious, uh, as you guys put it. Um, wh- how, why, what is you like you sitting back as an agent? Like you're like, I, cause I know how I would look at it as a cop and be like, how the fuck am I supposed to enforce that on anybody and, and do it justly and fairly like, because you know, there's millions of people out there that have that because they were legal like a month ago. So I, what did you, what was your reaction as an agent when this shit came out? I wouldn't waste my time on it uh, as an agent. Uh, <laughs> I knew it. I would, I, you know, I, I would be going after, you know, if, if it was a convicted felon who had that, sure, I'd go after him. Uh, if it's a Joe Blow citizen, I don't have time for you personally. Yeah. As an agent, I don't have time to go after Joe Blow citizen. You know, because he's reading it one way and it's slightly different. Like Don was saying, how many times is it being used in in uh, in violent crimes? Um, he was a convicted felon and he was out there doing this stuff. Sure, I'd go after him. That's kind of the, the whole point. Um, we're, we're, we're a small group of agents um, and we have enough laws to enforce that doing this one as well. First off is, you know, I think uh, trying to go to everybody's house and try to pick them up is... Uh, somewhat suicidal um, just because people love their guns and they're not going to want to give them up without a fight. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's as bad as the, uh, the assault weapon argument, you know, in AR 15, you know, you know, the actual AR 15, I mean, they're calling, you know, that, that gun is, it was designed for the military. It was designed to, you know, engage targets. It was designed for it to hit and tumble inside your body. So it caused a lot of damage, but didn't kill you right away. Cause the you know, medics to come out and pick you up and you still die three days later. It's designed that way. The AK-47 was designed uh, by third world countries because it's easy to shoot. It's easy to clean. It's easy to maintain. And it shoots a big round. Now, the you know, comparison-wise, the AR-15 is, is an overall better rifle. But if you want something simple and easy, the AK is. These assault weapons, you know, we're designed for war, but there's a lot of there's a lot of guns out there. You can take a Ruger Mini fifth or Mini fourteen, which shoots the same exact round as a AR fifteen, the Colt AR fifteen, 
it's the same gun basically, but people are saying, oh, the AR-15 is illegal, but the Mini-14 is not. It's like, wait a minute, it shoots the same round. It has, it can have a 20 round magazine in it. It can have everything else. So they're, they're getting caught up in what I consider, you know, the minutia of it all. Um, you know what, let's go after people that are, you know, should not have firearms. You know, quite frankly, you know, if you're a felon, you shouldn't have a firearm. Uh, but I don't think anybody should be restricting the rights of people to have firearms, uh, period. I mean, I mean, I might, you know, cut my teeth with ATF in, in uh, San Francisco, California, which back then was a 15-day waiting period uh, to get a firearm. You had to wait 15 days. Now it's only 10 days. But when I started, it was 15 days to get a gun. You had to, you know, go and buy it and wait 15 days, come pick it up. I mean, we... We got some felons that came in and did that. We were able to set them up and take them off. But once again, it comes down to, you know, a lot of these laws that are on the books, um, uh, we, we go out there, we do enforce them, but we have to because, you know, they're criminals, they're, they're felons, they're bad people. Um, like I said, if, if I was an agent today, I'd be like, I don't have time for those kind of cases. You know, if it's a Joe Blow citizen, um, you know, I say send them a letter, you know, Turn it in, you know, if it's if it can, becomes illegal, just send it to them, say, voluntarily abandon it, you know, whatever. Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't waste my time or my agent's time focusing on those type of, of that type of crime. And, you know, because I'm retired, uh, I can say these things. I mean, yeah. I'm still an agent. I, I might be a little more cautious. I might end right. up in Detroit or Flint, Michigan, for that matter. So yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm, in I'm in San Diego, California. I like it down here. OK, it doesn't it doesn't snow down here. So. But that's just, that's why my so many bad guys out there. Oh, did I? Am I still here? Oh, you're good. You're good now. You're good. Okay. No, you came back. Yeah. I guess that, I was talking that, to you. <laughs> Go ahead. I'll let you. That, I, yeah, I, that I, makes people. Yeah, that cuts you off, Sean. People, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the man's watching. Uh, yep. Yeah, ATF <laughs> is sending out those signals. It's like you're. <laughs> yep. You better watch out. You're going to get Clinton. Um, <laughs> So he suicided himself. It's crazy. Um, but uh, yeah, that that's see, that's kind of the, the, the humanizing factor. I like people to see is like, look, we know this stuff's bullshit, too. And we ain't out looking for you. Like somebody had to report you. Somebody had to to at least even get that letter sent to you or anything like that. Um, but yeah, it, it's it, you guys understand the, the minutia, as you say, and the bullshit you know subjectiveness to to these things um but uh i want to move on to y'all you know we basically you guys are firearms experts is is, is what on the vibe i'm getting from y'all and um i we didn't really know each other before this so i just want people to know that that um I was reached. We have a mutual friend, uh, Jake White, who's been on the show before. And Jake's like, dude, you should get these guys on. They're ATF. You haven't had any ATF guys yet. And um, I said, yeah, that's a good idea, you know. And they're retired, so they're not restricted in what they can say. So that works. And then he's like, they also have this thing um, because of their, you know, over what, 50, 60 years of experience combined, um, they've got some so they, they've, they've seen some holes in the system and they're trying to streamline it a little bit more so you guys came up with something and uh i want to get into that part now the the thing that you guys are doing post-retirement i think we kind of talked about the good the bad of of atf um and firearms and everything like that now let's talk about the future what what's coming down the pipe and something that you guys have 
continued what I would continued your life of service. You've you're still serving through this company and through this thing that you guys got going on. And I think it's really cool. If you are a law enforcement officer, especially my investigators out there, this may be the time you really want to pay attention. We've been bullshitting for an hour. Um, so this probably this last half hour ish will, will talk about something that, um, I think is really cool and it's called evidence IQ. So without ruining the storyline and what it is and how it came to be, um, I'll let who, who wants who wants to lead this this uh, story out here so we can talk about it. I could I could start it off. Yeah, Sean, you uh, start right, with Sean. the you know, you know follow up. You know the you know I retired five years ago. Um, you know and, I, and like I said, the last five years all I did was a, it was a NIBIN program, um, and it was about crime gun intelligence. Um, I did a few different jobs after that. You know, um, quite frankly, and I was playing a lot of golf, and decided that you know go ahead. Can you explain what NIBIN is for those that don't know what that is? Sure. NIBIN, NIBIN is a National Integrated Ballistic Information Network. Basically, the cartridge case is left behind crime scenes. Uh, you put them into, you basically do an acquisition of them. Uh, they get put into a brass tracks machine. Uh, and then is able to use, through the match point machine, is able to connect that particular cartridge case to other cartridge cases at other crime scenes. So it's connecting crimes through the use of, of that particular firearm. So if a firearm was used in five different crimes, that cartridge case, because it's unique to that firearm, is able to match up. And that particular match, then what it does is it gives you crime gun intelligence and allows you to share crime gun intelligence across jurisdictional bounds, boundaries. Because um, like you may not ever know that the, the shooting in, four, it, um, say, say, for instance, in uh, uh, San Francisco is connected to the one in Oakland, even though they're just across the bay. You may never know that because... Those two areas, you know, they work independently. They're their own cities. They don't share the information. What Niven will do will connect those two. It'll connect the, that shooting in San Francisco, the one in Oakland. Um, and basically it's like, okay, now you've got criminals across in the Bay to shoot, shoot each other. Um, and so you now you have this information. It's all about crime gun intelligence. And so that's kind of where we're, you know, what, what we, our company is kind of based off of. Uh, we, we have the same... Um, basically goal is Niven does. It's basically get the shooter off the street. Um, we're tired of reading it in newspapers, seeing it on the news, how many people are being killed. I shouldn't say newspaper because that kind of dates me a little bit. More like on the uh, internet, um, seeing how many shootings there are, seeing all the uh, the different uh, people that are getting killed. You know, A lot of them are grandmas and children, unfortunately. Um, what we're seeing, though, is that criminals hit about 90, they miss about 98% of the time which means they're hitting about 2%. So if you're missing 98% of the time, those cartridge cases left behind in crime scenes, extremely valuable intelligence. Um, but it's important for the police department to pick them up, put them into the system, uh, and get those those particular those cartridge cases into the system to help identify, you know, potentially the shooter of those those crimes. You know, you know, before this we start before the uh, the podcast started, Eric you and I were talking it's like, you know, at a crime scene, yeah, if there's a body laying on the ground, you don't have many people run up going, hey, officer, officer, I saw what happened. You know, they're not going to. I mean, they just won't. I mean, that's just kind of the way it is. They're not going to talk about it because they don't want to be targeted next week. So, you know, what it what does do is it allows, you know, those shootings where nobody's hit, there's no blood, no body. It gives the opportunity if the officers are using, say, for like door hangers, put door hangers on the, on the doorknobs and let them call a number if they saw anything. Um, there's all sorts of examples of that going on. There's one in Colorado. There's the guy did a drive-by shooting, didn't hit anybody. 
you know, Denver PD put out, you know, uh, door hangers. Uh, they got a call, they, you know, and then the next day they went out and there were cameras in the neighborhood. They knocked on a door and a lady goes, oh, yeah, I saw it. Here's the license plate number. So now you got a suspect. So it's about crime good intelligence, but it's about getting this information um, as quickly as possible. Because if there's no blood or body on the ground, you will you might have some witnesses. You might have somebody say, oh, that was, you know, Billy Bob over there, you know, driving around just shooting his gun off. Um, but it, it, if there's a body on the ground, they won't talk. So the idea is getting this crime good intelligence. And not even it connects those cases, but what leads into our company is we do what's called triage for NIBIN. So those say there's 50 cartridge cases on the ground. And those 50 cartridge cases, somebody has to first off collect them, but then somebody's got to look at all 50 of them and determine how many different firearms there are, and then pick the best representative sample for each one of those firearms. And that is what goes into the NIBIN program in the NIBIN system. So someone's got to do that triage. And right now they use a microscope, you know, and they get training, they use a microscope. But if you get 50 or 60, you know, that's a lot of staring into a microscope. You know, you're going to have, you know, it, you can have mistakes. Uh, what our system will do is basically it, it does a triage for you. It puts it in a machine, takes about 30 seconds to scan. Uh, I think Don may demo it later, uh, but it takes 30 seconds to scan. At the end of the day, it, at the end of it, it'll produce a report that says, Hey, there's five firearms using that crime. Now, as a detective, you know, uh, you know Eric, you were detective, you know, before you just got promoted. Um, knowing that there are five firearms in an investigation, would that help you if you're investigating that, that shooting? Absolutely, because if I have no witnesses, I don't know how many people are involved. So if I knew that there was five shooters, that MO in itself, knowing that it's not a single person, tells me, well, it's probably gang-related, just right off the bat. Exactly. It's little pieces of crime good intelligence, but if you do that while you're still doing canvassing on the scene, would that be valuable to you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So our system, the way it's set up, is you were able to do that. Uh, once you get the cartridges collected and back to the, the uh, station, uh, you put them in, and they can still be doing their canvassing, their interviewing, even if there's a dead body. I mean, they'll be going to be out there for a while. You can find out that, hey, listen, there are four firearms involved, or there's one firearm involved. I mean, that's all, it, that's all pieces of crime intelligence that detectives need to know, you know, and then it identifies the best ones to send over to NIBIN and get that, gets that into the system quicker and gets you the results back quicker and identify, hopefully identifies other crimes that gun was involved in. And then you can help hopefully put together pieces you solve enough pieces, you're able to identify the, the shooter and get them off the street. Go ahead, Don. Yeah, no, I was just going to add on, you know, um, great overview of what NIBIN is and what it does. And, you know, Eric, you may know there's, you know, there's over 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. You know, NIBIN, these are, you know, it's an acquisition site. Basically, you're familiar with APHIS. You know, there's the bo these boxes. You come in, you scan fingerprints, so they all feed into the national database uh, for fingerprints. You know, NIBIN is is equating to that. It's just like like that. So for 18,000 law enforcement agencies, going to throw it throw it out to you, Eric. Uh, how many NIBIN sites do you think there are in the country? Um, I would based on how long it takes for me to get shit back, I would probably say like, you know, maybe 50s, 100, something like that. Not too far hopefully off. One, there's, hopefully one for each state. <laughs> Minimum. Uh, there's, that would be nice. Actually, there are some states that uh, there are no NIBIN in, in, in it. But there's around 300 sites nationwide. So, And you've got a lot of agencies that have to drive three, four hours 
to get to their NIBIN site. And they can only go once a week or twice a week. And they have to make an appointment to show up. So <clears throat> you're, you're an investigator. You have a shooting on thir- Thursday. Your NIBIN day is Wednesday. How many days are you missing getting that in, that intel? Even though on how many guns were involved, you're at, you know, you got set, you got to wait a week before you can go drop your stuff off. And then you're basically waiting for how, how busy that site is somebody to treat, 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 triage it. And that's the biggest backlog is 18,000 agencies trying to filter into 300 sites. I mean, that's, you know, that funnels thinner than the tip of this pen. So what we do with, with, with our technology, since we've, we've realized and ATF has said it, a lot of studies have shown that the biggest hurdle is getting that information triaged and put into the NIBIN system as quickly as you can. So as Sean said, you know, our system does it in 30 seconds. We are the only automated and patented triage tool on the market right now. The way it works, you've got a shooting. If you're going to take it to your NIBIN site and you've got those 50 cartridge casings, you're taking that bag, dropping it off and saying, see ya, call me when they're done. Somebody has to manually look at each one of those underneath a stereoscope and make a subjective decision. We're basically allowing technology it's not replacing anybody. Somebody still has to operate the machine, but let technology work smarter and harder for, for you. Um, so with our algorithms, it's able to generate that report in minutes while you're still working the scene, be able to say, hey, you got three guns involved or you got two guns involved. And, oh, by the way, you you recovered one already. So now you're just looking for one gun when witnesses may say, oh, yeah, there were four different shooters here, you know. Now detectives got to run down these rabbit holes of trying to find these infamous three other shooters. But to know within minutes while you're still working the scene, hey, there's two guns involved here. That's what's that critical crime gun intel that we want to get out to the agencies that they're they're lacking from getting. Now, how robust is this thing? Is this something that I could literally do in the field? Like... Is it something I can just carry? I can't, it's hard to tell from the picture. And for those listening, I have this thing. Um, I've got the website up. Okay. So <laughs> it is 16, 16 pounds, power power over USB. You just plug it into a desktop or a laptop. Um, I'd say okay. about 85% of our agencies keep it in the office because that's where all the evidence is going to come back to anyways. Either their crime scene techs use it or it's in the property room or a detective office, uh, they keep it right there and it's on a computer. Okay. Yeah. I was going to have Sean hold it up while you explain because, um, his, yeah, that way we can, so that's the front of it. Can you kind of show how, talk him through how this thing operates here? I know it's 16 pounds, so he's holding up a bowling ball right now. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, there you go. (laughs) Start doing curls with it. But yeah, it's got a mic, it's got a microscope on, on the top that microscope, um, it's basically the same type of microscope that's used to etch serial numbers in diamonds and also assemble mic- microchips. So what we're okay. able to do is look down deep down into the firing pin impression, all the shear marks, all the breech face marks, or basically all the breech marks that are basically embossed on that cartridge case from the breech side of that firearm when that cartridge case is sitting up against it and you squeeze the trigger and that firing pin hits it. And that 2,000 pounds of pressure is sending that bullet down, down range. It's basically stamping all those marks 
on the, the head stamp of a cartridge case. And those are pretty unique between guns. We're able to be able to say that, hey, of these 20 cartridge casings, these eight are from one gun and these 12 are from a second, second gun. Our algorithms, our system is able to do, do that with, within between 90 and 90, 95% accuracy. Really? Damn. Yes. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Okay. So let me give you a scenario, me as a cop, thinking as an investigator. Um, I get a, uh, a gang beef going on. Um, mm -hmm. One just went and shot up, you know... Uh, rival gang leader's girlfriend's house. Um, no one's hit. We get out to the scene. We know there's going to be retaliation probably within the next 24 hours. Um, we collect mm -hmm. those shells. Am I able to take that thing? Cause it, that's portable. Am I? Mm -hmm. So if I have a laptop that's hooked up to the Wi-Fi and in the internet and all that stuff, I can basically take that thing out there and start doing shit on the scene. Like if I have a mobile mm -hmm. crime scene unit. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You're able to, we, we, we made it, you know, it's pretty robust. You know, we could have made it a lot lighter than 16 pounds, but we know cops. Uh, yeah. We throw shit around. Oh, we like, <laughs> we like to say it's cop proof, but it's not firefighter proof because they break everything. So, uh, <laughs> true. Very, very true. Very true. Yes. Um, okay. Okay. So, and this is me kind of thinking outside the box for those listening. Um, I am a, uh, board member for the uh, National Real-Time Crime Center Association. It's I, To me, that's the future of policing. It's a it's a way to catch bad guys more safely for everybody, including the bad guy. Um, it's, it's, you know, the, I guess the other uh, key phrase for that is intelligence-led policing um, and, and doing all that together. Now, this tool, in my opinion, seems like it falls under the realm of real-time crime investigations because we have stuff that we're catching, like, actual real time right in the moment. And then we have stuff that I would consider is still hot investigation. The, the crimes just occurred. Yes. We're not giving it to a detective to start, you know, looking over the facts of the case and trying to figure out more leads and stuff. We're still investigating the crime. We still got officers on the scene looking mm -hmm. at shit. If we had this tool, we could have that out there. Cause my crime scene people, they're mobile and uh, have their, you know, their van of tools they could have this thing with them and start and give the troops on the ground, so to speak, and the real-time crime center, like, hey, you know, look for a car that's occupied four times, like, in the area. That, mm -hmm. that may stand out, depending on how your cameras are set right. up. That has a lot of circumstantial hopes, but it that's how we operate as cops. We <laughs> we take the, we take the low-hanging fruits we find, and we go with them. So uh, I think you guys are in the realm of real-time crime and i would exactly. definitely push yourselves into that if you haven't yet um, yes yeah and, and one it, thing to even you know expound on that even more with the real time we like to say we're getting you actionable intelligence in real time because we've got the box and that gives you the automated triage so one you know right now hey there's two guns involved and you can equate that to two shooters unless you've got a John Wick out there, double fisted shooter. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, what goes into Niven? Well, the second aspect of our solution is called the rapid ballistics. And basically that is our real time crime center. So let's go back to that shooting, you know, 20 cartridge casings at the scene. It, it tells you there's two guns involved, which helps you right now. Okay, I've got two shooters. We've got 30 firearms examiners that work for us 24-7, 365. 
And when I say 24, seven, 365, people are like, well, yeah. So that's like what Monday through Friday. And I'm like, no, it's 24, seven, 365. They work for us. So you take that crime scene analysis triage report that tells you the two guns and what goes into NIBIM. You can send that to them electronically. And what they will do is look internally within the BIQ system because NIBIN is closed. They don't allow anybody else to play in their sandbox. They will look internally within BIQ because uh, we know crime is local. Rutgers came out with a study in early 2000s-ish that said a handgun is used in multiple shootings within like a five to seven mile radius. So you know your, your shitbirds are staying close. They may, they may cross city lines, but they're not driving 300 miles to, to do another crime. So what they're able to, to do is take that triage report, send it to our examiners. They will look in real time to see for any what's called a potential link, meaning the shooting that you have in these cartridge casings, are they linked to anything else? And right now, our national averages, they're getting a report back in under four hours in real time saying that, the shooting you just had today, it's linked to a shooting you had last night where the shooting you have right now, and this is a real life, real life case, Thursday night robbery happened. Take guy walks in, in, into a store, take over robbery, fire shots in the air. No, nobody hurt, robs a place and leaves Saturday night, midnight homicide shooting. Dead body, you know, of course, homicide, nobody saw nothing, nobody was around. The robbery, they've got, you know, potential suspect. They scan the robbery cartridge casings in on Thursday, no links. Homicide case, Sunday morning at 1 a.m. They scan those in, send it to our examiners as an urgent case. 18 minutes later, we tell them that that homicide gun, that homicide case, those cartridge casings are linked to the robbery. 18 minutes, that detective had a report saying, holy shit, this homicide, which we had nothing on, the same gun was used in the robbery two days ago. And oh, we know Eric is our, our main suspect on that. What do you think they did right there? They immediately hightailed and went and scooped up Eric to find out, is he related to that? So Getting results in, in hours on active casings, it isn't pie in the sky. It isn't what we're trying to achieve. We're doing this every day. While you're still working the scene, you're getting reports saying how these shootings are linked. Okay, so I got a question. Um, Nibins is the, so if, if people are, aren't real, because there's cops that they, you know, they take reports and they move on. They don't. They don't do the right. investigation side of this, so I'll, I'll take a little time to explain to them as well. Nibins has their own nationalized database of these shell casings and then these 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 markings and all this stuff and we do not have we're not privy to access to that is what i'm understanding like we can request hey here's what we got and they will tell us this was what it matches up to is that correct well kind of uh, basically when you you once you put it in the system it's called acquisition you, you do the acquisition it puts it in the system and automatically it'll get sent over and get and the correlation will be done to see if it does match up with the system the NIBIN program does that automatically. It'll do that. So if you send, you get it put into NIBIN, it'll check against the NIBIN system, everything in the NIBIN uh, database to see if it is connected to any crimes. Um, it, that does it automatically. You don't have to request that. 
that's just automatically done. So if you're putting it into Nibin, it gets done automatically. Okay. Now, does that, I, I understand that it gets done automatically, but what I'm getting at is that database of the stuff that they're comparing it to, to see if it matches anything. Cause they're going to, if that bullet's never been used, if that shell casing has never been used in any crime, they, they take that information and they store that into their stuff. Okay. Now we've got, this has been used this time. And then if that shell casing, another one's found a month later that matches up, Nibin is going to say, Hey, we got that in our database. This shell matches that same shell. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, as long as it's okay. put in, it'll match up. You know? <laughs> and most most areas like Donald's hand, most you know, in a certain amount of area, uh, not even works kind of the same way. It's in a region. Now, if you thought if you have intel saying that the individual came from, say, you're in uh, California, and the guy just recently came from Texas, uh, you could have the, you could have that the, the shooting of the gun that he had. Uh, compared to everything in Texas as well, because right off the bat, it's not going to do it. It'll do the, the California region, um, but you can't have it done nationally, which will check everywhere in the United States. So you can't have right. that done. So most of the time, though, it's just done in a region. You know, it usually covers three or okay. four states. So, but the point that I'm getting at is that database of all that stuff that they have. For us as investigators, we don't have read. I can't just go into my own system and say, "Here, scan this real quick. Let me see if it compares to anything." I have to wait for Niven to tell me. You have to put it into the into the Niven system first, and then it, right. it will come back and tell you. But you can't do it. Right. You know, your yeah. department will do it. Your your crime scene, you know, probably your yes. crime scene will do it. Yes. Um, but if you, if it hasn't been done, yeah, you can you can take it over there and tell them to put it in. Like if you have a case right. where they weren't put in, yeah, as a as a detective, you can take it over to the Niven system. Say, put these cartridge cases in, and they will. Right. And this yeah. the the point I'm getting to is this all takes time, and it, it definitely doesn't happen within an hour or two or four hours hour. or whatever. Um. So, what I'm asking for y'all system, does it give police the power? to hold their own internal database for their localized area Yes. to make these yeah, searches quicker. So even, even if you don't have a database started, once you get evidence IQ, that database starts growing from day one. And then correct that, that yes. And you're, okay. So, and you're automatically so, sharing with any other agencies in, in the area that, that have it. And, and, and what also makes us unique is that, Everything that you scan in is geocoded. You put in the address, you know, 99 New York Avenue, Washington, D.C., ATF headquarters. Uh, you put that in as the shooting site and everything is mapped. So you're able to go in as an investigator in real time, log into the system. And the great thing is you can log in from your phone. You, you could be at home hear about a shooting you're you're off work you just got done you heard about a shooting they're using it you can log in from your home computer um log into the site and you can actually pull up a map and see where all those cartridge casings are being recovered and scanned so now you know hey wait a minute these are all here these may be associated with with this gang we know they're going to be living over here and these shootings are are all connected so we're able to give you that because we know that we're visual learners. People like to see things in front of them. So we're actually, you know, we've got all that mapping software in there. We And we integrate with like Fusis and Finder and other agencies that that other or other companies that agencies may use. 
to have all that in one one stop shopping. So you pull up a site, you've got here's all your LPR cameras, here's your pawn data, here's this information. And, oh, by the way, here's all your ballistics IQ, here's all your cartridge case recoveries. Because what what that helps, you've got a shooting and you're like, hey, you know, uh, it was a dr drive by. We don't have any, you know, we got a potential red red Honda because the old old lady across the street saw it. Well immediately pull up the map where it's at. Where's my LPRs around here? Let me see if there are any, you know, either mobile or stationary. Let me look for a red, red, red Honda. And you get links that, hey, th this shooting you just had is linked to a shooting from three days ago that you had no, no information on. Well, let me go back to that shooting and let me check the cameras 10 minutes before and 10 minutes after. Oh, look, here's a red Honda that just happens to be right around the corner 30 seconds after that shooting that you knew nothing about. So layering all that information is that crime gun intel and that real-time crime center that's going to help detectives be able to, you know, our, our motto is help you solve crimes quicker and close cases yeah. faster. Absolutely. Yeah, good, okay. Yeah. Go ahead. The good thing too. Yeah. Good thing too, Eric, is that every one of your detectives can have, have it on their phone. There's, not, there's no limit on how many you can have it. Uh, if you want your entire department to have it, they can have their own icon, their own sign-in, uh, and their own login, their, their password. So they, we don't put a number on how many people can have access to it. Everybody in your department can have access to it, which makes it nice because now, you know, people change jobs, you know, you may, and you have it already on your, on your phone. You have access to it no matter where you're going. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, it's that, all about getting them that, that intel quickly. Yeah. And that's Sorry. huge because, uh, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, I, I deal with a lot of these companies all the time and it's like, oh, well, for every 10 users, it's, you know, they get this and you're like, bro, I got 2000 cops. This is going to cost me more than it costs to maintain our patrol vehicles. Like the juice ain't worth the squeeze. It's nice, but we, I don't know what type of money you think we have. We ain't got that type of money. Uh, we'll never get this approved. Like you're living in fantasy land. So the fact that, once once you have it, you know, anybody can have access to it within the department on their phone, especially because shit, we do most you of our log in. fucking work. Yeah. Now you can't, do most you, you can't scan with your phone. You know, the, the box has Correct. to be plugged into a laptop, but you yes. can do all that work. And you'll actually, we actually have this system set up when you scan it in and you get that crime scene analysis triage report. We, we can actually have it automatically set up and the ag agency can default this, that the detectives will automatically get that those reports emailed to them automatically. So it's not on the crime scene tech and I scan it in and it's, you know, it's five o'clock. I'm out of here. See you tomorrow. And the report comes back in my in inbox and, it, and it's going to sit there until I get there tomorrow morning. No you can default it and pick group lists or individuals that those are automatically being sent to the detectives. So there, there's not that single point of fa failure, somebody getting a, a report and not being able to pass it along. Yeah. The other, good thing, the other good thing too, is that that report, it takes about a minute to run after you put the last cartridge case in. So within a minute to two minutes at the most, you're going to have a, you're going to have a copy of that report. So you know, it's not like they got to hit, Okay, submit and then come back, you know, four hours later to get the report. Now it's done very quickly and it's e easily sent out to your detectives. 
also the training too. The training's online. It's three and a half hours long, and they can train. You know, it doesn't have to be a sworn officer. It can be anybody. Uh, I mean, they even taught me. And I started when I started. I carried a wheel gun, and I didn't have a cell phone, and I didn't have didn't have computers. So uh, if they can teach me. They can teach anybody. Is basically the, 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 the whole yeah. thing about, about it. It's simple to learn. I think this goes in to show like just how much people that do this job care because we, you know, people think that cops are cynical assholes, which we kind of are, but um, we also think that, yeah, they think we don't give a shit, but look at the type. I mean, in, even in your guys's retirement, you guys have tried to help shave time um, down because we get, we get irritated. We got to wait that long. To, right. And it really, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you look at police work, it's not that long, but we want it faster. And I, I just, I can't wait for the next generation of cops to, once you guys are a regular household name in, in the, in the police world, now they're going to complain that they got to wait one to two minutes. Yeah. Then we'll never be happy. Why isn't it on a cell phone? Why can't I scan with this thing? You know, um, so it, it's just funny how that works, but it, it does. It's a testament to um, how we, how much we care about what we do and, and making sure that justice does get served. You know, our, CEO, and, our CEO brought up a good point too. He, our CEO, his focus is to take shooters off the street. Uh, he lives up in the Chicago area. So he sees it on a daily basis, uh, how many shootings are on stuff, you know, and that's the reason why I came out of retirement to take this job is because I, I, I saw the need and uh, one of the biggest needs and being working in the nightly program, I know where, where the, you know, where it lacks and timeliness is where it lacks a lot of times. It's just because people don't have access to it. So if you can speed up that timeliness, you're able to target those shooters and get them off the street. And that's the goal. You know, that's the reason I came back to work. That's the reason the CEO took the job. I'm sure that's why Don did it too. It's like, you know, we're, we're tired of seeing the number of shootings out there on the street. And how many people are actually dying needlessly? Uh, if we can, if we can stop it, stop that trigger puller, because you know, Eric, working the streets, you know who the trigger pullers are. You know which guys are willing to pull the trigger and which guys carry guns just to protect themselves. But if they get shot at, they're going to shoot back. So, yep. and as a as an officer, you know, you're responsible every single round that you fire. Crooks, they don't care. They're going to fire yeah. and bullet hits some grandma on the porch. They don't care. You know, you know, it needs to. We need to stop the cycle of the people just shooting. You know, the victim this week, like Don said earlier. Next week, they're the, they're the, they're the suspect because they're going to retaliate. And we see a lot of it, and it's not always over drugs. It's because yeah, you looked at a me, woman. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You looked at me funny. You looked at my girlfriend. You know, or you know, you're, or you're just in that gang, and I'm in this gang, and I'm supposed to shoot at you. And then guess what? Then they come back next week, they shoot each other again. So it's not like when we grew up. And when I grew up, you know, we'd get out and get fist fights. We'd punch each other in the head. Kids today go get guns and they kill each other. So yeah. we need to stop. We need to stop. Yeah, and something something you mentioned early on, Eric, in the beginning, you talked about how, you know, we, you know, continue to serve and that, you know, we, uh, with with this product and what we're do, doing. And that's that's why I do this. Yeah, I was at another job and I got approached to come, come, come do this because this is what I love. Um, you know, when I get, because I get copies of all the potential link, link reports that come through. And when I get a report that comes through that an ag- agency just used our solution and in hours they were able to link homicides. I mean, 
sometimes, I mean, the hair on my arm stands up because I'm like, yes, this is fucking awesome. I'm still, I'm still in the game. I'm still helping, helping communities. I'm helping agencies. I'm helping them do what they need, need to do. And it still feels, yeah. I mean, I, I carry a, a retired badge and I carry a gun, but I'm not out working the street, but I'm still contributing and giving back. And that's what's the main thrux of this company. We've got, you know, several re retired officers that work with us and we're all about wanting to continue to serve. Yes, company, we want to make money so we can develop and enhance and provide this, but it's all about the greater good and getting these shipbirds off the street. Yeah. Yep. I agree, sir. Um, well, gentlemen, I, I don't have anything else. We're about an hour and a half busted over a little bit, but, um, is there anything we haven't touched on that you guys want to make sure we hit? Just a, we, we, ta we target, we're targeting shooters. We're trying to, there's a problem and we're trying to fix the problem. And the problem is triage, knowing the number knowing the exact number of firearms and getting that stuff over into the Niven system. So they get put into the system is a problem in a lot of areas. Some places not, some places they have great results, but a lot of places they don't. Don mentioned 18,000 agencies, a lot of agencies, a lot of people dropping off cartridge cases. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a gap out there. We're trying to fill that gap and we're trying to help departments fill that gap because they want to use crime gun intelligence, but they just can't get the results back timely enough. We talked about it before, Eric, if, you know, most detectives, if you don't get results back within 24 to 48 hours, You've caught 10, 12 more cases in that, within a week that you have to work that are more important than the one you just had. But if you had information right away, you, you could actually work it and maybe get that shooter off the street. Yes, sir. Well, all right, Don, appreciate you being on here, buddy. Sean, appreciate you. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Not this was a great, great time. And I said it in, in the beginning, but I love the show. I love, love Thanks, seeing the, the, serious, the serious conversations that you do. But I love the little video clips, especially the ones with the new officers and the rookies. And I mean, those, those are great. You guys do a great job with those. <laughs> I appreciate it. I try to mix in some humor, try to give people my sense of humor uh, so they kind of understand where I'm coming from. And uh, yeah, I like to, if I can sprinkle in some education, I'll sprinkle in the education mm -hmm. on some of those quick things. And then, uh, then yeah, the podcast in itself, it's, it's the more serious uh conversations um if my humor yeah. if something gives me an opportunity to share my humor with people i definitely will do that um if we're drinking whiskey it definitely comes out a little bit more so <laughs> well cops, cops, you know being in law enforcement our sense of humor is a little bit different than the normal person yes. so yes it, it definitely is. yes it is <laughs> all right gentlemen i will uh okay. once this cuts loose i will um just stick around and we'll we'll talk okay. offline but don did you have one more thing nope nope just nope. saying thanks all right all right guys take it easy take thank care. you buddy stay, stay safe, safe.